0: there, Womantics. I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabeau.
1: Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you'd like to support us even more, please tell your friends or your mom. And subscribe, rate, and review on your
0: favorite listening app.
1: We also have a Patreon if you'd like to give us some financial support.
0: If not, we get it. No worries. All of our content is free for all of our listeners. Thank you again for your support of romance. Thank you so much for listening. <sighs> i'm morgan and i'm Isabel. and this is womance a podcast about romance novels about tudor architecture about men that get under your skin about dead wives that get under your skin about
1: t Tippelin house uh runners god what you
0: forgot the word for housekeeper
1: i did indeed forget the word you for housekeeper.
0: <laughs> she does so much it's a podcast about the sea adjacent if not the sea itself a podcast about jealousy a podcast about horse girls a podcast about labor but most of all it's about that first thing romance novels and ourselves, ourselves. This week, we continue our spooky season recordings with The Mistress of Melon by Victoria Holt, aka, well, I guess the Victoria Holt is the aka, Eleanor Hibbert is her real name. Exciting. She actually had quite a few aliases, nom de plumes, and she wrote different genres under each alias. So Victoria Holt's probably her most well-known, her second most well-known. She wrote some great historical fiction under the name of Jean Plaidy. Plady. I don't know. Plaidy, I think. And then she also wrote real, like, light romance novels as Eleanor Buford for Mills and Boone. And that's just some of her work.
1: Yeah, prolific is the word that I would describe for this human being.
0: Actually, only about 200 novels, which whenever you think about someone like Joanna Lindsay writing solely under one genre, I expected there to be more.
1: I think 200 is a fuck ton. <laughs>
0: 200 is a lot. But think about like the bibliographies of some women who write exclusively romance and how big their
1: back catalogs are.
0: Yeah, yeah. Think about like, I wonder how many books Nora
1: Roberts. That's true. Nora Roberts is probably written into the hundreds at this point point. Yeah. Or Danielle Steele for sure has.
0: For sure. Definitely. But I think it's a fair assumption that Eleanor Hibbert didn't have any ghostwriters and jury's still out on Danielle Steele. What? Did she just say that on a podcast out loud? That's right. We report rumors here at Womance.
1: We do. Although I will say that the Vanity Fair article that came out in the early aughts about her only eating chocolate, typing until she falls down at her typewriter, makes me believe that Danielle Steele doesn't have a ghostwriter.
0: Although there's a human being that's really in charge of her brand. So like, you know, I wouldn't fault her for having a Kuntzian, Dean Kuntzian style setup or a James Patterson style factory. Also, that just makes her a job creator. That's exactly right. Don't hoard the jobs. If you've got the cash, spread it around. Mm-hmm. So Mistress of Melon was published in 1960 and is credited with reviving the gothic romance novel until Kathleen Woodiwiss came along with the flame and the flower and uh, chucked that out the window. That's cool. So we've been talking a lot about gothic romances, especially this time of year. And we were we decided we were finally going to read one. And whenever it comes to picking one of these gothic romances, the Plot is almost always identical to the plot of Jane Eyre. And it's the same thing over and over again. (laughs) And it's true for the plot of The Mistress of Melon, where we have a governess coming to a secluded old house with a distant, bad dad-seeming type father who may or may not even be the real father of the children she's hired to tutor. There's a ghost maybe in the house and then they fall in love. Chaste love.
1: Yep. Although I will say like Jane Eyre is sexier than
0: this book. Mm.
1: I think what's interesting about when you're doing a riff on so specific a text and so seminal a text like Jane Eyre.
0: Yeah, I think we'll get into it once I, I read the back of the book. Just to provide some context, this book was published in 1960 Just to ground that, Ben-Hur won Best Picture in 1960. Another notable American film release of that time was Some Like It Hot. Amazing. And so we're kind of at the precipice of the sexual revolution, but not really a sexual revolution. Ray Charles and Ella Fitzgerald kind of swept the pop Grammys that year. 1961, Acknowledging Work in 1960 was only the third Grammys ever hosted. I don't know if that makes this novel feel surprisingly modern or shockingly old. I have the same. Same feeling about it.
1: This is a yes and thing. And I think, like, it helps me to compare this to Jane Eyre as I sort of try to plot whether or not this feels very old or feels strangely progressive, because I, having something to compare it to that's even older than it helps me function in the way that I'm thinking about it.
0: Yeah. Something else, maybe, that would be helpful is knowing Mistress of Melon was a hit when it was published. It became a bestseller. Like I mentioned earlier, revived the gothic romance genre for a new group of. People. The previous wave had been in the 30s uh, and 40s, and prior to that, it had been in the 1840s through about 1860.
1: Yeah, when I told my mom that we were reading Mistress of Melon for the podcast, she got super flippin' stoked because this was a seminal text for her in 1965 when she had broken her arm that summer and had nothing to do, and her older sister read a lot of books to her. That's when she was first introduced to this book, along with a bunch of other mid centuries. And she was like, I'm so excited for you to talk about it. And I was like, okay, mom, glad you're excited.
0: Yeah. So I'll read the back of the book from the most recent version, which was the ebook published by Amazon in 2008. That was when it came out as an ebook. Okay. Mount Melon stood as proud and magnificent as she had envisioned. But what about its master, Conan Tremellon? Was Martha Lee's new employer as romantic as his name sounded? Does Conan Tramellon sound romantic? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. This was written by an English person. Keep that in mind.
1: <laughs> Where Cornwall feels like so far away in a different environment entirely.
0: I know. As she approached the sprawling mansion towering above the cliffs of Cornwall, an odd chill of apprehension overcame her. Tramellon's young daughter, Alvine, proved as spoiled and difficult as the three governesses before Martha had discovered. But it was the girl's father whose cool, arrogant demeanor unleashed unfamiliar sensations and turmoil, even as whispers of past tragedy and present danger began to insinuate themselves into Martha's life. Powerless against her growing desire for the enigmatic Conan, she's drawn deeper into family secrets as passion overpowers reason, sending her head and heart spinning. But though evil lurks in the shadows, so does love and the freedom to find a golden promise forever. I don't know what the golden promise is.
1: That's sex. That's what that is corporeal lovemaking.
0: I think it's marriage and the fact that she's no longer a penniless governess.
1: Yeah. And so I guess that's where I want to start, if that's okay. So she is a penniless governess, but what makes her different than Jane Eyre is that she, like Jane Eyre, penniless governess comes to a fancy house. But unlike Jane Eyre, she had four seasons and her sister gets married after her first. And I thought that was like an interesting departure from Jane. Also, like her name Martha feels like such a 1960s name to me. <laughs> Even though I know it's biblical, I'm just like, it feels like Marty especially feels like out of time, out of step of like the time of this novel.
0: I agree. But I think maybe that comes from like, this was a really impactful historical. And I think maybe historical romances, gothic romances become all the more impactful if you can put in like a shockingly modern detail. Because that also relays to you that she's a shockingly modern woman for 19. 19- 1960 whatever that means mm-hmm. i don't think they knew what modernity was really mm. they had kind of like an itch in the back of their throat but i don't think anyone was able to scratch it so having this like remarkably modern sounding nickname really did a lot for me to connect me to the character like i imagine what it would have been like and then in 1960 to be like oh she's just like me
1: i was so put off by it whenever she's like referred to as miss lee i'm like this is so much better <laughs> <laughs> even as I recognized how weird it was that he like continued to call her Miss Lee.
0: Well, good thing Miss Lee is the most common referential for her. Yeah, thank God.
1: Otherwise, <laughs> what would have happened? But the difference that her having four failed seasons and being older than Jane is that she's 24 when she arrives. And there's like sort of almost I wouldn't call it quite a world weariness, but it's a level deeper against naivete that like Jane shows up with when she gets to Rochester's place. And So having somebody who's like a little more versed in flirtation and a little more versed in like what men are doing around her and like them being able to observe it in the way that it's functioning made her more accessible and frankly, more modern than Jane in ways that I found approachable, but also like really cool for the book. And like it also made her like even sadder as like a person. She's like a failed debutante who like can only do this thing and like people feel bad for her and like blah, blah, blah.
0: But what's also interesting. So 2 points on what you said and the comparison to Jane Eyre. At one point, Marty (laughs) relates that like she is in the same boat as every other governess and that she was a woman of means who was unable to get married or like lost those means, which is not true for Jane Mm -hmm. when we find her in the book, although she does have like a good family background. she's an orphan, Mm -hmm. grew up in an orphanage. Mm -hmm. So that's really interesting. I thought it was really interesting that Martha was like me and all the other governesses.
1: I liked that too. And I liked that she like continued to put herself in line. And I think like, yeah, that was such a move against like, I'm special. Yes. And like this book was like ruthlessly being like, no. And our main character is like, I'm not special. I'm just like these other girls. All of them had fortunes that were lost by their shitty dads. This is me. I am just one in a line.
0: The other aspect of that, to compare it to Jane Eyre, Jane Eyre is super conscious of her place, her appropriate place, but it gets released in this really self-deprecating way that you get the sense of like her true belief is like, I am the protagonist. (laughs) And I never got that sense with Martha as a first. Person narrator. Like, she always seemed very conscientious. There were times when her expectations in a given moment, without being like super self deprecating, being like very practical, honest. And I think that, you know, whenever we talk about the fact that the author was also a really important historical fiction writer who did a lot of research, I think being in that headspace, you know, maybe not to like say that Jane Eyre is a worse book or a worse narrator than Martha Lee, but I think there's something to be said for like the author of Jane Eyre being like too much in it like she's too present like she wants to be the protagonist it does make Jane Eyre look like even more of a Mary Sue dare I say that I do dare say that I mean we know that Jane Eyre is a Mary Sue (laughs) I still feel bad. People use Mary Sue disparagingly, but I think of course you should write your Mary Sue. I
1: think you should too. And I think like Mary Sue's disparaged for a lot of very particular reasons. Men use that more disparagingly, I think, than women, especially in fandom. The thing that I think is important and like potentially a difference here is we're dealing with a writer who is well into her stride, right? And Jane Eyre was the
0: first novel of... Charlotte Bronte. Let me check Eleanor's bibliography. Yeah, she'd been publishing romance since 1941. Yeah, so like
1: she's like 20 years in. And so like in some ways, like I saw the scaffolding, like there are moves here that are like literally just lifted from Jane Eyre. And like this book like was incredibly tight in terms of its plot turns. And I just like I knew what roller coaster I was on. I'd seen the roller coaster, got up in line, and then I rode all the turns and I knew where they would be. There are a few surprises, I will say that. But like the difference, I think, in the self-deprecation versus pragmatism of Martha versus Jane, I think it's all these things that we're talking about, which also feel fairly modern, like one of the things that Jane has to do is think about herself as a unique individual because everyone's telling her to like fit into the fabric and like do this thing. And this book isn't interested in uniqueness so much as it is like interested in the plight of women and how vulnerable making it is to be a woman in all sorts of ways. Because like when Martha first shows up, she's in a train car and like this handsome slash weirdo shows up in her train car and is like, you go into Melon? And she's like, yeah, but like kind of leave me alone. He's like, let me read your
0: palm. And she's like, don't touch me. I immediately loved him. I did too. My comment was I would like to marry him, please. Because he's so charming and effervescent and
1: persistent. And like her immediate sort of like push pull of him was really interesting to me. And then when she gets into the course cart and she begins to get like the tragic history of the place and the fact that like the Nesselcock brother got a bunch of people pregnant. Nestlecock, it's
0: Nansel. Cock.
1: <laughs> Nestle cock,
0: Freudian slip. Not even Freudian. <laughs> Well, one of the things I want to talk about these early chapters and these early character introductions, because one of the things that I do want to speak directly to the author, one of the things Victoria Holt is doing really effectively is describing a hot woman without making her aware of her hotness. Like she's once more just really pragmatic. And there's never anything where she's like, oh, the boys said I was beautiful, but I didn't see it. She was like, men make too much about looks and they're probably just flirting because flirting is fun. But she is. It's so effective at describing. Describing a hot woman. And it's so interesting because it's done through her own first person perspective. It's in the first chapter. And that's when I was like, oh, man, I'm in the presence of like a real professional writer. The prose isn't purple. Like, can I read it? Please. I pictured myself as I must appear to my fellow travelers if they bothered to glance my way, which was not very likely. A young woman of medium height already past her first youth, you love that. She's in her second bloom. She's not yet in her second bloom. Being 24 years old in a brown merino dress with cream lace collar and little tufts of lace at the cuffs, cream being so much more serviceable than white, as Aunt Adelaide had told me. So you're getting the sense that she's switching classes. She's going from the gentry to the working class in this moment. My black cape was unbuttoned at the throat because it was hot in the carriage. Sexy. And my brown velvet bonnet tied with brown velvet ribbon ribbons under my chin, was the sort which was so becoming to feminine people like my sister Philida. Philida? Phil. But... I always felt, sat a little incongruously on heads like mine. So good. Here we go. My hair was thick with a coppery tinge parted in the center, brought down at the sides of my too long face and made into a cumbersome knot to project beneath the bonnet. I just have so much hair. It's like cumbersome. My eyes were large in some lights the color of amber and were my best feature. They were too bold. So said Aunt Adelaide. Such a good little... Cut it before it becomes too like, I guess I'm cute, which meant that they had learned none of the feminine graces, which were so becoming to a woman. My nose was short, my mouth too wide, air quotes. In fact, nothing seemed to fit. So she's got big, beautiful lips, a little bitty nose, big amber eyes, tons of coppery curls, a long oval face, like just very elegant. But like you don't realize it until you like take stock of the picture that was built into your mind.
1: Yeah. Travel to from various boats, which I shall occupy for the rest of my life since it is necessary for me to earn a living. I shall never achieve the first of those alternatives, a husband.
0: Yeah. I'm like there. Right. But it's like never t- too much. No. It's never too woe is me. It's never like, I'm just an ugly duckling. It's Mm -mm. like, well, Aunt Adelaide says that that's why I didn't get married is because my eyes are too forward, which kind of says more about Aunt Adelaide than it does about her. Oh, totally. Or anyone who like saw her.
1: Right. And she never conceives of herself as a failed debutante. Like those are words that I put on it. And I assume Aunt Adelaide. But like one of the things that's so great about this is like that she puts, I will have to earn my wage because the First alternative is closed to me, a husband. And like the idea that getting a husband and earning a wage is the same fucking thing. It's so true. It's stupid to say it, but it's also so deeply rooted in like what this book is trying to uncover that like all the turns of that vulnerability, it's like husband and job are the same thing because what they are is material comfort.
0: And it's so 1960 because it's realizing that like these aren't two different stories staying at home or working out in public. This is the same story, just written different ways. And to be like a professional housewife requires a great deal of skill. Oh, man, I got I went down the Smithsonian Channel YouTube hole and they were talking about the American princesses. So this like movement of American heiresses to marry into the British aristocracy, which was really poor. And they talked about how American. American women debuted in England. And one of the key differences was American girls were always told they were special and they were also educated as much as their brothers, even if they were only educated in the home. And so British women of the aristocracy, they had a lot of skills that related to like managing a household, conversation, flirtation, but they couldn't really talk to you about, you know, military history. Right. And so then all these American heiresses show up like the modern day pick me girls where they're like I don't really know much about crocheting or whatever, but I can speak three languages and I also have a lot of self-confidence, which is going to overwhelm you.
1: Yeah, I'm going to overwhelm you. Also, the Crimean War. What do we think? Yeah. That Charge of the Light Brigade? Not that good of a poem, but like, let's talk about it.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like, I can have like heavy conversations. No one told me that I couldn't talk to you that way. Right. And what a like social coup it was.
1: There's a wonderful book about that called The Buccaneers.
0: Yeah. There's also a PBS series based on the Buccaneers. Oh, and they were also the ones who brought Charles Worth. So Charles Worth was a English designer working in couture in Paris, and they brought Charles Worth back to England because unfortunately, it turned out the French women were as sexually confident as the American <laughs> ones. So we had a much harder time scoring husbands over on France. That's funny. History's mysteries. But I think about that in terms of why Martha is so captivating immediately, and it is because she like has a very sexy sounding face. Mm-hmm. You know, I just love that like big hair and a big mouth. That's my dream. I wish I looked like that. But because she's had four failed seasons, she's freed of that feeling of I have to try and seduce someone so I can speak plainly and directly. I have the right to maintain boundaries mm-hmm. and the responsibility to maintain boundaries in this relationship in the case of Peter and her failed project with Conan to a certain extent. And, you know, and it creates, 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 once again, this thoroughly modern heroine for 1960.
1: But also, strangely, not, right? I love that you say that it's her job and her responsibility to maintain boundaries, and you're right, but it's also, like, Jane's job, and men are constantly transgressing that. And, like, there are a couple of scenes where, like, she very forcefully puts Peter in his place, and he, like, accepts that, and she does the same to Conan, and, like, the stakes are different, because Conan's obviously her employer, but, like, The fact that it is her responsibility to remind them constantly that she's the governess, that she is indeed in their employ and therefore under their power in a very particular way. Like Jane does the same thing to Rochester. And it's always the woman's responsibility. And like not unlike the things that I'm sure you were told because I was told them in school where it's like, boys are really going to want things and you're going to have to like put on the brakes. And I remember thinking like, what if I don't want to put on the brakes though? Like, why is this on me? You know?
0: But if you don't want to put on the brakes, then you don't have to and you can end up in a situation like her predecessor. Right. Who had a little bit too much of a flirtation with Peter and uh, was too pretty and got fired for it, which we'll get into. But I think that's a two-way street. If someone starts flirting with you and starts transgressing a boundary for you, whether you're a man or a woman, you have to be the one to either set the boundary or not. And I think the fact that feeling like you can't set the boundary is the regressive point of view. And feeling like you do have to set the boundary is the progressive point of view. And I don't know if it's necessarily gendered. just because if someone's flirting with you and you don't like it, I think as a man if anything you feel more entitled to set that boundary.
1: But I think like what's happening here in this text and what's happening in Jane Eyre is like also the level of like boss employee and the fact that like there is already a boundary there that's like very clear and the fact that like Rochester and in this case Conan transgress it and then Jane and Martha have to be the ones to remind them. But that's still feels
0: very prescient to me.
1: It does, but it's also like, I think it continues to be upsetting to me, right? Like, that there is no difference in that between 1848 when Jane Eyre is published, 1960 when this is published, and the fact that, like, you and I have also probably experienced things like this. Like, that's the collapse here that feels like a shit we haven't moved
0: enough. That's the thing though, you have to realize is that we don't move very much at all.
1: Right! That's distressing.
0: But I mean, we're in the modern moment. I think we're socialized to think of like things modernizing as being like a teleological project, right? That means things are getting better or like getting closer to an ideal. And that's not necessarily true. It's just a bunch of rough drafts. Yeah, but I feel like we're just like constantly on this rough draft. It's, it's frustrating, but I don't think better is definitive of modern.
1: No, I totally agree. I'm just saying one of the things that this book really exposed for me is just that, that like progress, you know, big P, in terms of like history or modernity moving forward is like not a thing like it's much more cyclical and infinitive than that and like this book made that really clear in ways that reading Jane Eyre it feels so modern but it's so removed because of its purple prose because of the things that happen and like this is not
0: that. So you do think Martha is a modern heroine? Yeah. Okay. Very much so. The conversation started because you said you don't think she's modern.
1: Oh, I mean, yeah. Because of that. She's modern. The problems are modern. But
0: that's a bummer.
1: Yeah, because they're the same modern problems that Jane Eyre had literally 120 years before this.
0: Yeah. I'm glad we got to what you were saying there. So I don't really want to talk about the hero. I don't care for Conan, but I think that's important is like, Conan... Conan is a, is a nothing sandwich. Conan is a mirror. And I think that's why the aloof hero appeals.
1: He's more of a nothing burger than like most aloof heroes, though.
0: You know, he sounds hot, like physically... I guess. I get it. She calls him gaunt at the beginning. Oh yeah tall and elegant. Right
1: almost to the point of being gaunt.
0: Well she says gaunt but gaunt could mean something else back then. I think gaunt (laughs) was like part and parcel of like he's a gothic hero. She's writing a gothic romance. He's got to have some dark circles right?
1: Doesn't have muscles.
0: He doesn't have muscles. That's okay.
1: What was amazing to me about Conan is like how much he lives rent free in everyone else's minds and hearts. Like, he doesn't have a ton of space on the page. Like, he doesn't say a lot. He actually has very few interactions with our heroine. He's always in Panzans. He's always in Panzans. And so, like, it was really hard for me to also separate the fact that he wasn't, like, going to visit Kevin Klein.
0: I kept thinking... (laughs) I was like, I get it. Yeah, I would want to go to Penzance. Penzance sounds cool. I would too. I knew he wasn't Kevin Klein. So,
1: like, what's he doing in Penzance? I'm like, well, he's visiting Kevin Klein.
0: Cornwall only has the two palm trees in front of his house. So, I get why he was going to Penzance. For sure. Melon seems terrible. But, like,
1: there's this line on page 90 in my book where he's just come back from a long time away and she's with Alvine. And Alvine doesn't want to go back up to the schoolroom. She wants to spend time with her dad. And she's like, come with me, kid. And she's like, kind of ripping her by the arm because like Alvin's being stubborn. And she says, I wanted to explain to her, you love your father. You long for his approval, but my dear child, you do not know the way to make it yours. Yeah. Let me help you. But of course I said no such thing.
0: (laughs) It's just like Yeah.
1: And like this kind of thing where it's like she understands that Alvin is desperate for approval and love from this person and that she's going about it all wrong. And so then she thinks about ways to help Alvin get the approval, which is amazing. But then she also spends a ton of fucking time thinking about Conan and why he sucks. I don't know that I've ever seen a hero live this rent free in all of the characters.
0: Well, it's all of the characters, but I think what that's doing is it's allowing for like the great male renunciation of giving a shit about anything, but still allowing the book to communicate his power and therefore his like sexual appeal through other people, right? Because we know that he is this enigmatic, charismatic being because of the way the staff is around him, because of the way his air quotes, spoiler alert, air quotes, daughter is, you know, so desperate for his approval and the way the people across the cliffs, the nestle cocks are around him as well. It allows the book to like communicate that prowess without making him the kind of character who needs to perform a soliloquy on his own being. Yeah. Or allowing the heroine to obsess over him in a way that I enjoyed it. I thought that was so smart. I did too. But it doesn't actually, like you said, build out the character in any <laughs> particular way. All we know is that he's powerful and we assume there's some kind of charisma. I mean, it's a Tinder bio. We know he's. and we can see from the pictures that people like him.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's a Tinder bio. The book has so carefully selected those pictures. It's like on Tinder when you're like, oh, I need one with like me and a dog and then me and a group of people so you don't think I'm a weirdo loner and that I have friends. This book is so good at that because you're right. This book would be so boring if she perseverated on him after like two interactions. But the fact that like the housekeeper like constantly brings him up and then there's like this crazy great aunt who lives in the... Moors who talks about him and like the housemaids and Peter Nestlecock. Like you get that he's trying to needle him.
0: To make it clear, we're calling them the Nestlecocks, not the actual last name in the book. What is it, Nestlecott? Whatever. No, it's Nancel. Nancel Cox. <laughs> But Nesselcock is easier to say and more fun to say. Way more fun. And the other great thing is that the only time we get him being like a gentle, like a man of action is in relation to when he does the most important thing a romantic hero does. And that is impart the information that the heroine is very special indeed. And I think the first time this happens is she is with the two little girls who live in the house. One is born of servitude, Gillyflower, and one is her char the little lady of the house, Alvine, and they're watching a ball happen because the one year of mourning after the death of Conan's wife has come to pass, so they're celebrating. (laughs) It seems so inappropriate to immediately have a ball, like, but no one thought of that. They're like, one year, let's go. So the three gals are watching the ball through a peep on the second floor in this beautiful solarium-type room with a glass ceiling so that they're illuminated by the moonlight and the stars. And it turns out that our hair. Heroin's a really good dancer and she knows that. So she wants to show the girls that she can dance to try and win them over because it's early in her tenureship. And then everyone happens to come upstairs and they see her dancing and immediately Peter wants to dance with her, of course. But then Conan cuts in and sweeps her out of the room and pushes her against a wall and kisses her. And we're like, oh, my God, she's so desirable, you know, and that makes us feel good. I loved that. Victoria Holt is only giving us just enough for Conan. It's not totally convincing for me. But I do see the scaffolding, as you say. Mm-hmm. I think it's especially there
1: for him. I want to I wanna pull up that
0: line. Do you have an actual physical book? I do. I got it from the library. I made them pull it out of the stacks. I'll just look it up in my digital book because I can do a little search bar. Okay, so he says,
1: Miss Lee, you are very charming when you abandon your severity. Caught my breath with dismay for he was forcing me against the wall and kissing me. I was horrified as much by my own emotions as by what was happening. I knew what that kiss meant. You are not Averse to a mild flirtation with Peter Nansalock, therefore, why not with me? And I was like, oh fuck, 1960, hello, but also 2020, hello.
0: Yeah, but also the era of this book. Yeah, so she assumes that he's not actually attracted to her. We as the readership know that it's because she is a captivating, magical person with nice big lips. But of course, she has to reason it as, oh, it's because I was dancing with Peter that he thinks I'm a bit of a bite.
1: Yeah. And then the other moments where he becomes softer, like he has the picnic. She yells at
0: him a lot, which I like. I always like it
1: when the heroine yells at the hero and is like, you're an asshole. Fix yourself.
0: She has one good, big yell at him. So she decides that she's going to trick him into loving his daughter by teaching her how to ride horses. Mm -hmm. Like she's a very physical person. Mm -hmm. Once again, hot jocks falling in love turns out to be my favorite trope.
1: Hi, my name is Ellen. And I'm Ellen's mom. And together, we host Not Your Mom's Romance Book Club, part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Our podcast is basically like having a book club with your gal pal and her mom who thinks she's part of the gang and won't leave you alone. Lame, whatever. Kidding, to a degree. We post new episodes every Monday, and you can find us on social media at Not Your Mom's Rom. Find Not Your Mom's Romance Book Club wherever your favorite podcasts are sold for free. And
0: happy romancing! So she's good at dancing. She's great at horseback riding. Alvine is very scared of horses and. Conan loves horses. So she's like, okay, I'm going to teach you how to enjoy riding. So they do lessons every day. She's going to enter into a horse competition. Alvin decides that she can only be deserving of her father's love if she's in a more advanced competition. Immediately falls off the horse and breaks her wrist. And uh, that's when our girl goes off on him and she's like, if you weren't so withholding, she would not have injured herself. Here's what sucks about him being softer after that. And like being nice to Alvin. It's because he wants to fuck the governess.
1: Yes, a thousand and ten percent.
0: Like whatever other way we dress it up. I mean, of course he like proposes to her or whatever.
1: But he's like, oh, you care about Alvin. So now I too must care about Alvin.
0: Or I have to show you that I care about Alvin. It's the holding a puppy in the Tinder profile. Ah, uh, it
1: is.
0: That's what he's doing now. And, you know, creating a new narrative of himself. But of course, like I said earlier, everything he does that's actionable or gentle is just in service to the fact that our heroine is attractive interesting and special. Mm -hmm. But I like it better when Peter does (laughs) it.
1: Because we have so much more of Peter and Peter's so funny and like Peter's actually interested in her and Peter like gets things about her that I guess we're led to believe that Conan does. But like in her boundary setting with Peter, she's insistent about being a governess, but she's also like really resentful of being a governess because she can't fully enjoy the flirtation that Peter's offering. And so he brings that to her attention. He's like, oh, you're only the governess when you say you want to be the governess and you, you don't like it when I bring it up, but like you just brought it up to like put me in my place. Like we're not on equal footing. And he does that to her quite a bit. And I think like their witty repartee is so enjoyable because of that, because they feel like matched equals versus the power imbalance of Conan and Martha is present in a way is almost to be like oppressive at points, but also like we just have less of him. He just speaks less. Like there's this scene, even when they're playing chess and like thing that I love in romance novels is when hero and heroine have like sexy witty banter over a chessboard, And it's like, it's not that witty. They're just like, it's cozy.
0: Well, they don't really talk even in that scene. No, we just know that they are playing chess and that he beats her. That's not the same because like we know that Victoria Holt can write banter. She can write actual back and forth. That is. Is compelling and flirtatious. She just only does it with Peter. Do you think that's because she knew she was writing a gothic romance, so she had to have a gothic hero who's this very aloof? So this is what I'm thinking of, to be transparent. I feel like in The Mistress of Melon, we have this really rich heroine, like we understand her interiority. I like her and then I get frustrated with her at times, just like I would myself or, or like a really great friend or a relative, right? I'm utterly charmed and then slightly annoyed at times and the book never goes too far with her making her like just one note awesome like some of the stuff she does sucks like as much as he's using Alvine to get to her she's using Alvine to get at him and her ultimate fantasy is for him to just be like gee willikers you're the best governess there ever was I was wrong you're right you're in charge now and then eventually like I was wrong you were right let's get married you know like she's this rich developed character to me he he is mostly a projector screen. Like I said, he's a tender bio. I feel like with a lot of the 21st century romances, as in published in the 21st century romances we've read, we get this really rich, developed hero that we can see ourselves following in love with, and then we get like a pretty, not intentionally aloof, just like not very well developed heroine, perhaps so that we can project ourselves onto her a little bit more easily, which is definitely a project that Kathleen Woodiwiss was engaged in. Specifically and explicitly. And so I wonder if Victoria Holt really loved witty banter. And Peter does play into the final act. He's not just a fatty cut of meat. He's central to the novels working out of the mystery. But I wonder if she made him the way he was, because you do, you get all that giddiness, all of that fizziness from the interactions with Peter and all of the information relayed about how special the heroine is, is much more clear with Peter than it is with the hero. But she had to make Peter that way so that Conan can exist as this gothic hero archetype aloof projector screen. Like aloofness and service to the projector screen where you could put any, you know, specific features on him that you liked, that you could get excited about in a hero.
1: I'm 100% on board with what you're saying in terms of Conan. I think you've really tapped into something. I'm going to continue to think about heroines in the 21st century being projector screens because my immediate feeling is that that definitely happens. But there are key instances is where it doesn't. And I'm wondering what that spectrum is and like why it works that way. I want to put a pin in that because I want to think about that a little bit more. Yeah. But in terms of Peter, you just brought up something for me that I think is actually, again, so intelligent about this novel that I hadn't thought about until this very moment, because you're right. Peter is used as a relevatory tool for us to understand Martha better. And it's through Peter that we understand her depth and also like her humor and like other ways that she's like complicated and, and enjoyable. Like a friend, as you say. But the other thing that I think is really interesting about Peter that didn't occur to me until this moment is that as readers, we understand that he's not the one that she's going to end up with. But in the text of the novel, he functions as not a terrible other choice, right? Right. He's functioning as like a potential suitor and is different, right? Because Jane and Jane Eyre, she is also offered another opportunity who is not Mr. Rochester. Right. But he's odious.
0: He sucks. Yeah. He sucks. Do you know what? Peter doesn't suck. Judith McNaught, Whitney, my love. Yeah. But what's different about Whitney, my love is that her two potential suitors, her two good choices are both basically the same man at different volumes. Yes. Yes. Like the equalizer is adjusted. And I feel like Peter is a completely different being from Conan. Yes. But I do think our two writers are deploying these nice guys. Yes. Backstabler. As it were, for similar ends. Yes.
1: And I hadn't seen Peter's character as a tool like that until this moment, which again goes to the point that this book is actually so sophisticated Mm -hmm. that I could just purely enjoy Peter like I knew as a reader, like she's never going to end up with him like I like him, blah, blah, blah. But like, that's not how this book goes. But the fact that like this text understands him as like a potential road not taken or a road that could be taken is so good, but also then serves to function as not only a relevatory character for Martha, but also as this like weird light so that we can see around the absence that is Conan, right?
0: Exactly. So we can see around. He's the other mirror, right? Right. If our heroine is the light, he's the mirror. Exactly. Yeah, totally. That's a very elegant way of describing it. So I think we've got to get into our weirdest part, sexiest part at this point. Okay. So what are you feeling? What do you want to talk about first?
1: I think maybe weirdest part. Okay. So I will say there was one genuine surprise. Do we spoil it? I mean, we do spoilers on this podcast, so. We do spoilers and yeah. Okay. So there are a lot of hidey holes. I loved both the depictions of like, there's the priest hole in this house because it was built at the end of the Elizabethan age. So you had to hide your Catholicism. There are also lots of peepholes. There's also what they call a leper squint, which is an insane thing to think about in a hidden chapel in your church where it's like you would have lepers in your house. Yeah, you'd have lepers in your house, but they are only allowed to like function in this like non space. They have their own special entrance.
0: Yeah, to their own special people, and you also think it can't be good for people with leprosy to be all like crowded up together, looking through a peephole. No, it would be so uncomfortable
1: and it's so painful. There's a wonderful museum in Norway about leprosy and Anderson's disease, as it's called now. That setting that was really great, but also like one of those details that it's just like plopped in. And it's like I know I'm in the hands of someone who's done a lot of research, but like I also wanted them to comment on the weirdness, but like they didn't, and that's fine.
0: There is a gesture towards the. The weirdness and the fact that everyone's always like this house is fucking nuts <laughs> and when our heroine finally goes to have luncheon with her predecessor in the job her predecessor is like I took the job because I grew up in a spooky old house her exact quote is houses can't be too spooky for me yeah <laughs> like I love that house she becomes like the key to unlocking the mystery because we have another female character who's super into the house
1: yeah, I guess that's my weirdest part for a gothic romance that has so much to say about place and ghosts and there are people in the windows and lights in the peepholes and all that like and Gilly is such a weird non-talking like wayfish child who's supposed to be somehow spookier than she like ends up being on the page. Yeah, the resolve of the mystery and like so I, I should just spoil it. I feel weird spoiling it during spooky
0: season. The twist I want to say before we get to it, I want will- was so genuinely shocked yeah me too I like made a noise I was like "Ah,
1: ah." yeah me too and I think like part of that is like I didn't get to enjoy my shock enough because like it comes right at the end and then it's almost solved immediately yeah so what happens is like they find the priesthole. She's with Celestine, Peter's sister.
0: So Celestine is like obsessed with Alvine, kind of dotes on her. Our heroine Martha discovers that Alvine is actually the illegitimate daughter of Alice, the dead wife, and Celestine's brother,
1: Jeffrey, not Peter.
0: Jeffrey, not Peter. Jeffrey and Alice supposedly died together in a train accident when they were escaping Melon together to be with one another so we have this character of celestine and we're like oh she dotes on Alvine because she doesn't have a child of her own she doesn't have a marriage of her own it's her secret niece but nope that's not why that's not why turns
1: out that she's obsessed with the house as you would be a lover soulmate and so she's just been killing folks so that she can marry conan to be with the house yes so good! So good, so good. And she shoved poor Alice down the priest hole stairs and locked her up. And since the house is so well constructed, A, it's really hard to find the priest hole door, and B, the walls are so thick you can't hear anybody scream. So Celestine comes over in the last few pages of the book after, you know, Peter's Martha. like,
0: we're not gonna be together because Martha is gonna marry Conan. Conan now, and so he's like, no need for me to stick around. I'm going to Straya, mate. <laughs>
1: Exactly, I'm going to make my mint. And so Celestine's like, hey, you
0: like those peoples? You like we're peeping on the ball? Yeah, and Martha had just reported that she'd met with the old governess who was also super into old architecture and been like, hey, could you let Celestine know? I went to see this other famous Tudor house and I think there was something weird with the walls and I think it might have to do with that priest peephole. So Celestine's like,
1: "Yeah." Celestine opens the priest hole and she's like, go look down and then pushes her in and then shuts the door and then it's all dark and then as her eyes adjust to the gloom, she understands that Alice is with her. The long, suffering, ghostly presence of the house turns out she didn't run away with Jeffrey. She was murdered by her friend
0: and like left to starve to death. It's a wretched way to die in the dark. Yeah, it's a wretched way to go down. And
1: like we are there with that knowledge for three paragraphs and then like the door opens and it's Conan and he's like, I've got you. I've got you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I was like, "That's my weirdest part." Is like, a Conan's supposed to be a gothic hero. I need him to like fucking break down the door and tear it open and get her out, and then like somehow like nicely carry the bones of his poor dead wife out. And so like, a that wasn't enough for me. And b we are only in the dark like once the body's revealed. I was like, shit. And then it's like two paragraphs later, we're already out. I was like, I wanted to sit in the gloom and be scared and sad.
0: I think I was as scared and sad as I could have possibly been for those two paragraphs. And I was like, oh my God, we have to find a way out. I think it would have been interesting to kind of... Now, this is just like armchair authoring, right? Monday morning authoring. But I think it could have been more interesting to extend that by having a situation where like we know our heroine is like a go for it type. If she tried and failed many times to figure out a way out of the situation. She becomes really resolved to her death quickly. And I think it would have been also captivating if like our heroine came up short and like ultimately she has to be rescued by this child who she's been obsessed with rescuing, Gillyflower, And it has to be a matter of like her future husband is now literally saving her and not just metaphorically saving her. Yeah. I mean, I totally
1: agree. And like I would have liked to spend a little more time or like have anybody spend a little more time being like Alice made a mistake when she was 19 by trying to pass off Jeffrey's child as Conan. I mean, the book is like, she didn't deserve what she got, but like everyone was so willing to be like, she ran away and then the train ran off the tracks and like she deserved to burn to death. And I was like, she had a terrible death.
0: Well, we get that wonderful tea with her great aunt who goes over all of the different ways and her aunt's kind of working through her own self-blame, her own survivor guilt. But in her working through of that, we get a lot of insight into like societals. Society is responsible for the death. It's about society, man. That is kind of the work. Working through that, we get. This book is so tight and so good.
1: It's so tight. It's so good.
0: I mean, thinking about that death of Alice, I went back to the first encounter in Melon when she was like, Oh, no one goes into the chapel. It smells weird in there. It's like, Oh, because there's a decaying body in the walls. That, uh,
1: it's also interesting to me that, like, we all, whenever a funky smell in an old house is described, like, it always just has the assumption of death. And I think, like, the fact that death has a smell and it can like permeate a house at multiple valences. Like that smell is like a creep that can, like, move in and out of
0: space. It's an omnipresence.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, smell is an omnipresence, death is an omnipresence, and death has a very particular smell.
0: I think my weirdest part is Gillyflower as a character. So Gillyflower is the secret sister of Alvine. She's got white blonde hair. Her mother killed herself after the death of Joffrey in the train accident, or supposed death. I guess we don't know for sure what happened at all. Probably Joffrey died. But she walked into the ocean. and and drowned herself after that incident. And Gillyflower had an incident with the mistress of the house, Alice, who took very good care of her, who took a real vested interest in her and was almost trampled by her horse. So there's like lots of unexplored stuff. Like Gillyflower is this like ethereal being who is wiser than anyone gives her credit for. But she's also this weird like glue between Martha and Alice that doesn't really work. Martha does this thing where she tries to connect with Alice so she wears her old writing habits and will like squint at herself in the mirror and try to imagine what Alice looked like because people are always mistaking her for Alice because she's wearing the same clothes and they think Alice is haunting the house, anyways. So they're like, ah, you know. <laughs> but Alice is also this real whole person and that she's just kind of a basic bitch. Like not in a bad way, but she's definitely a pumpkin spice latte gal. You know, she loves fall. She's a nice person, but she's not a particularly interesting person except for the situation in which she found herself.
1: Which also isn't that interesting because the housekeeper's daughter finds herself in that same situation. And I think like again, this book is so good at like tearing down this idea of like individuality and specialness where it's like, yeah, n- this This actually happens to a lot of people like Jeffrey coerced a lot of women. Yes. Or coaxed a lot of women.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. She's not even special in her love affair with Jeffrey. But to that end, this thread of trying to connect Martha and Alice feels wasted in a book where everything else is so tight. And if it's just to be like, look, they're going to die the same way at the end. Well, then that doesn't really pan out either.
1: No, I agree. I think that's really weird. And especially to have Gilly be the connection rather than Alvine herself where it's just like...
0: Right, exactly.
1: Gilly's a little tangential there.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I totally get that.
1: It's weird because I feel like Gilly is supposed to also be a manifestation of place and atmosphere. And it's always weird when you're using a character to
0: evoke that. And also like, I get that kids are scary, but having (laughs) her be like the real ghost, like she's the one who's always moving through the house and she's always the pair of eyes that's on you when you feel weird, either her or... Celestine, who's just like sneaking (gasps) into the house. (laughs) I love this house. Going through the secret halls. It just felt kind of icky having like Mm -hmm. a child who obviously has endured a traumatic experience that has left her in a depleted condition. And her coping mechanisms are now understood as like, she's the ghost. (laughs) Kind of sucks. (laughs) Yeah,
1: totally. Totally hear
0: that. And also just like her neediness. She made me uncomfortable. Yeah, agreed. I feel bad saying that.
1: No, it's fine. I mean, like, that's how she was written. She's written to make you feel uncomfortable. Like even the scene where Gilly is the linchpin that saves Martha. Like she's just waiting on Conan to pay attention to her and she's just pulling on his coattails. Weird. Yeah. And I was like, well, here's the moment. Like she's been teaching her all this time. She's finally going to use her words. It's going to be a real sort of like, God bless us, everyone. But like, it's not. It just maintains its creep
0: factor. (laughs) It maintains its creep factor. I do like that. It wasn't like she was inspired to speak. Speak because she loves her so Like that would have been like a little too sappy, you know? I do feel like it's it's very measured, this book. Okay, what was your sexiest part?
1: Mm, sexiest part.
0: Is it gonna go to Peter? Is it gonna go to Conan?
1: Or is it gonna go to neither? Oh. I'll say this. The moment that I was most corporeally ignited.
0: Stimulated.
1: Stimulated. Corporeally stimulated. And this is gonna sound really weird.
0: Okay, I'm ready.
1: Is when her sister said her the Christmas presents.
0: Oh, and she gets to put it's a makeover scene. I totally get that. And it's like this insane, gorgeous comb
1: and she has to put her hair up in a new way. And it's a silk scarf with this emerald green and the amber matches. And her sister sends her this dress and she's like, "It has always suited you better. And I want you to have a beautiful goddamn dress. And she puts it on. She's like touching herself and like she can go to the Christmas ball now. Uh, I just like that to me was like such a sexy scene.
0: See, I thought you were going to say something about horseback riding. Oh, I mean, yeah. This book is peak horse girl. If you are a horse girl,
1: get this book.
0: This is going to, yeah, strum for you. Just because her experience of like meeting new beautiful horses, being very good at riding all of them, and the discussion of like their different forms and their different feelings and the sensation of riding a horse. Not in that way. That's what I thought you were going to talk about.
1: No, I mean, I did love that. And like whenever anybody describes a horse nose, I'm just like put me there
0: Put me right there. I'm trying to do the horse notes, so I can't do it. It's so hollow and, and big. Oh, it's so good. And velvet. And velvety.
1: And you know, she talks about like what it means to like trust and be trusted by a horse. And that's great.
0: Yeah. And, and how to have that connection. And it's very like de-gamified. Like that's the thing. Like her flirtations with Conan and Peter are both very gamified and very stressful for that reason. And she doesn't have that when she's meeting the new horses. It's true. It's a really good point. It's a simpler way of being... What was your sexiest part? For me, it's got to be Peter. Mm -hmm. Team Peter all the way... Mm -hmm. If I'm going to pick a sexiest moment, it's when he finds her in the woods and she realizes he's the man from the train and he sits next to her. And they're both kind of like, oh, this is the situation. Like we're going to see a lot more of each other. And he's so giddy about it. It made me feel good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I'm going to be honest. I self-project into these novels. I think a lot of people try to act like they don't. I'm all in it all the time. And so I was like, somebody likes me. Yeah. (laughs) It was the feeling it was very evocative of. And just like that giddiness of like potentiality and like a new experience. When she first met him, he like read her palm, which I love having my hand touched and you know it's not happening as often lately. And like their banter is so good.
1: So good. And he always like sidles up next to her. Like he like seeks her out. Like
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: All the stuff with Peter is great.
0: I liked Peter better than Conan, but I'm not gonna totally write off Conan. Like he seems like a really great tool. He is. He's a great projector screen. Conan's a real tool. Yeah, he is in all the senses. I did really love his
1: two proposals. Like he goes at her very pragmatically. He's like Look at all these reasons like you should marry me. And she's like, is that it? And then he's like, here's an effusion of love.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like, I guess.
1: (laughs) It's like way to read this situation, guy.
0: Like, I guess. Okay, Womance or No Man? Womance. Absolutely. This delivered on the spooks. It delivered on the mystery, even though we didn't talk about that that much. In the first chapter, like I said, you know that you're in the hands of a professional. And so you can really let it rip your reading experience and just let yourself fall into the book, which I super loved and totally understand why this re-kicked off the super boring, super formulaic world of gothic romance. Because it feels so fresh reading it even now. Yes. While I'm reading Jane Eyre. Mm -hmm. Any final thoughts?
1: Go out and get this book. If you can get it from the library, do so. I mean.
0: For sure. And there are some gorgeous covers. I'm so excited for the Instagram.
1: Oh, I will say also, if you find yourself liking Cornwall, I would highly recommend not reading Poldark because those books are boring, but watching Poldark uh,
0: because... Hot, hot dark. Hot dark. Cornwall. It sucks that they let him keep his shirt on for after season one. It's so true. He only takes
1: it off one more time in four seasons. Crime. <laughs> sweeps week.
0: <laughs> I want every week to be sweeps week. Me too. Me too. All right. With that, loosen your stays. But never your principles. <laughs> Whoa, golly, gee, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance.
1: Womance is hosted by Isabeau, that's me.
0: And Morgan, that's me. Production is by Nick Gravelin. Our webmistress is the incomparable Jane Bonzac. And our illustration and logo were created by Mary Reichman. They're the best.
1: If you'd like to follow, creep, or connect with <laughs> us on our social media platforms, you can find us at Mans underscore score woe on Twitter, womance on Instagram or email at womancemail at gmail.com. You can also hang out on our amazing website at womanspodcast.com
0: You can support us by using our code to visit our sponsors or go to our Patreon where we are womance. Womance is officially part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Discover more podcasts just like our own centering on romance and reading at frolic.media slash podcast. Until next week.